Good evening, Uni Church. Uh, today's reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed entered that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when along the time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thanks, Celeste. Now, I didn't introduce myself properly before. My name's Sam. I'm the pastor here at UniChurch. Uh, I'd love to meet you after the service over dinner. Please do stick around and join us if you can. So uh, if, if you're new, you've joined us as we're working our way through the book of Hebrews. Uh, it's a book in the New Testament of the Bible, and it's written by a leader, a pastor, we're not sure exactly who, uh, to Christians who've grown up ethnically Jewish, um, but are now followers of Jesus. And it's written by this, this pastor, this leader, someone who, who deeply loves the people that he's writing to and wants good for them. He wants them to continue in following Jesus. He wants them to keep walking with Christ as they've started. And he's especially concerned that these new young believers don't drift away. Back uh, as he started the letter in chapter one, he used that language, a warning against drifting away. And that's something that we'll see come up again and again as we keep working uh, through the book of Hebrews. That's, that's a, a feeling that I'm kind of familiar with. As, as a, a leader and a member among a congregation of, I mean, any Christians, I guess, but particularly young believers like we are, uh, this is part of walking with Jesus, is being warned against drifting away. 
sadly, it's, it's something that we see happen in our community sometimes. People who have been walking with Jesus, following him, living for him, for all kinds of reasons, decide not to. Or maybe they don't decide. Maybe they just one small decision, one step at a time, drift, change course, and before we know it, people aren't walking with Jesus anymore. That's what this pastor, this leader is worried about for these believers. Right? And at Uni Church, we want to encourage one another, disciple one another, help one another to not drift away, right? to keep walking with Jesus, to be thriving and resilient disciples of Jesus who can continue in faith, not just this year, but for the next 10 years, the next 50 years, until the last day of our lives. That's part of our vision. That's part of what we want to do for one another. And so as we dig into this passage in Hebrews chapter 4, that's, that's kind of what we're, what we're thinking about, what we're focusing on. How do we continue in that journey, walking with Jesus, not drifting away? Or, as this passage puts it, the language that we're going to be using tonight, entering God's rest. Maybe you saw the word rest in the passage uh, as we were reading it. If you're a kind of note-taking type person, you might want to have a look through and circle where you can see the word rest. That's the kind of key idea of our passage. We want to walk with Jesus and enter God's rest. And we don't want to fall short of it. This pastor's writing to these weary Christians, right? They're, they're, They're kind of slipping towards drifting away. Some are on the verge of giving up. He writes to them to comfort them and strengthen them to endure in faith. Not in a kind of like a just try harder, grit your teeth and bear it, find another gear, kind of dogged and difficult kind of endurance, but, but through finding rest from weariness in Jesus. Now rest is, is a really deep kind of universal human need, right? Rest is something that we all need. And it's something that we seek in all kinds of different ways. You might have heard this quote before. The early church father, Augustine, said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless. They're searching for rest. And we're talking about not, not like the rest that you get from a good night's sleep, right? Not just, I'm tired, I stayed up late, I studied for too long kind of rest. Not, not relaxation and recreation kind of rest either. Not like a, a fun holiday kind of rest. This is about soul rest, deep rest, like, like peace at the end of war or healing after trauma, a, a, a deep, holistic kind of rest. You know, the, the American uh, Constitution, you might have heard this phrase before, states that people have the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I think maybe that idea is similar to what we're talking about with, with rest here. That state of deep well-being, completeness, fullness that we, we kind of orient our lives towards, that we look for. And I think there are lots of ways that we might undertake this quest, that we might look for that kind of deep soul rest that we all want. Here are, I think, maybe four of the ways that we or or people around us might look for soul rest. One way is is to look for life goal rest. 
So this is looking for that, that state of well-being and achievement and completeness by achieving life goals, right? Getting that job, being on that career path, finding that spouse, having the right kids, buying the right property, making the right investments, having the right retirement. Maybe you can see this in yourself, right? Lots of us are students or in the early stages of our, our working life, we're very forward-oriented. It's still about what we will achieve, what we will do, who we will become. Maybe the kind of life goals that you set yourself towards could be the way that you look for this kind of soul rest, this deep sense of fulfillment. Another way might be in a kind of expressive individual rest. So expressive individualism, Maybe you've heard that phrase getting tossed around a bit. It's, it's the idea of finding your true self and, and finding that rest, finding that happiness by f looking inside yourself and finding it there. So being the, the, the realest version of you, being who you really are, is how you'll find that deep rest. Maybe you'd look for soul rest in distraction, distraction rest. So this is, this is like hooking yourself up to a constant stream of, of pleasurable experiences, lots of dopamine, right, that provide these kind of quick hits and give us these, these temporary experiences of the kind of fulfilling rest that we long for, right, which seems, it seems kind of silly, but we totally do it, right? We, we do this through Netflix, maybe through partying, through shopping, through porn, through holidays. It's all kinds of ways that we look for rest in these, these kind of distractions in our lives. Or maybe we might look for rest through escape, an escape kind of rest. This is what, what we see like in, in Buddhism, in some new age spirituality, seeing rest as, as an escape from the concerns and troubles of this life, to pull back from the things that concern us and to find rest that way. So we seek to detach ourselves from the hard things, the bad things in life, to escape them. I think maybe sometimes people use travel like this too. People who are kind of living for the next holiday, seeing that as, as an escape from the things that are hard in life and having that truest expression of yourself when you're out of your own life and on holiday. So can you see any of those attempts at soul rest in your own life? In reality, we probably all do all of these a little bit in different ways at different times, right? And, and the things aren't necessarily bad things, right? To achieve life goals is not a bad thing. Netflix in itself is not a bad thing. But if we look to these things to find something that they can't offer, then we're left disappointed. One friend of mine looks for soul rest in property in buying houses. So he was saving hard for a house deposit long before any of the rest of us were, making significant decisions from a, a young age through that lens of what's going to set him up best for the best property purchase. Always talking about renovations. His kind of social media feeds are full of, of property content. And even when he bought the house, which he thought would be the one, to achieve that kind of rest, that sense of fulfillment that he was wanting, though he, he wouldn't have used those words, right? Even before he moved in, he was talking about the renovations that would need to be done, the things that weren't quite right about the house. 
His mind just keeps kind of searching ahead of him, looking for that rest in his house, in his property. Another mate of mine spent his 20s looking for soul rest in, in travel and partying, spending all his money on, on travel and on parties, living for the weekend and the next holiday, constantly posting these experiences on social media, getting into all kinds of pretty destructive behaviours in search of that experience that he was longing for. And now, for this friend of mine, it's kind of coming crashing down around him. He's realising that he was looking for something that partying and travel could never give. Well, the claim of our passage in Hebrews 4 is that there is a soul rest available to us. There is a deep rest that we can find. That thing that we search for, it is there. It is possible. And that it's found in resting in God. The claim here is that the rest which God offers is the one rest, the only rest which can fulfill that deep need and that it's, it's possible to have it. So let's think about soul rest in this passage. Let's talk about entering God's rest. There's a, there's a structure to how this passage comes across that's really crucial to understanding what the author's doing, what, what he's hoping for his readers and, and what God's hoping for us as we read it. I've put this, this, a little kind of diagram, those three numbers there in the new sheet if you're taking notes to help us navigate this. So rest is mentioned 10 times in the passage, but with, with sometimes slightly different language and it's being used in slightly different ways. But there are three horizons of rest, three different experiences of rest that the author's talking about. And the, the first that he engages with, that he talks about, is promised land rest. So our passage is, is very much a continuation of last week's passage. They're both part of this section in Hebrews where he's, he's kind of drawing lessons out of Psalm 95. And the author was urging Christians last week not to be like the wilderness generation, those, those Israelites who came out of Egypt that didn't listen to God's voice and so didn't enter the promised land. Hear these words back from last week's passage, from 3 verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So after God rescues his people from Egypt, where they've been slaves for 400 years, he leads them through the desert towards Canaan, the, the land that he promised to their ancestor, Abraham. Right? And he provides for them in all these miraculous ways. He deals with their enemies and threats. But as they approach the promised land, as God leads them there, they refuse to go in because there are already people there. And God's people are afraid of those people. It makes them lose their trust in God and disobey what he's calling them to do. And so God tells them that they'll wander in the desert for 40 years. 
and their children instead of them will enter the promised land. Because they responded to God's word, how? With disobedience. Because of that, they didn't enter God's rest. And so the author writes, have a look at uh, verse 2. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. After that 40 years wandering around in the desert uh, because they disobeyed God, Joshua then led the children, the next generation, into the promised land. And they did experience the rest that God had promised, kind of. Right, they had the land the promised land, but there were still threats, there were still issues, there was still sin. It was kind of rest, it was kind of what God had promised, but it was incomplete. It was like, like satiating your hunger with, with sugary food. Have a look at verse eight. He says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So Joshua gave them some kind of rest, but it was an imperfect, incomplete, like a temporary rest. There's got to be another rest beyond the one that Joshua offered to meet that soul need that we have. So that's the first horizon of rest, that that promised land experience of rest that the people had. But that's not the first rest mentioned in the Bible, is it? Can you think of the first mention of rest in the Bible? Anybody want to have a crack? Anyone feeling brave? Genesis. Genesis. Yeah, very good. Well done. Jay, can you remember where that is in the Bible? Seventh day. Seventh day. Yeah, just start start of chapter two, isn't it? Genesis chapter two. (laughs) Jay is in the same boat as the author of Hebrews. Well done, Jay. You're in great company. Have a look at verse four. He says, for somewhere he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. So the author knows that there's a rest talked about somewhere in the Bible, uh, and what he's talking about is the end of Genesis chapter 1, start of Genesis chapter 2. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. I love that he can't remember where that's from. It's literally page one of the Bible. So the second horizon of rest that's in view in our passage is God's own rest on the seventh day of creation at the end of creating the world. Genesis 2, verse 2. It says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had done. God's seventh day rest is the first thing that Adam and Eve experience in life with God. He makes them, and then he rests with them. They haven't done a week of hard work before they experience rest with God. They've just been created. But it's God's joy-filled gift, his sharing of the good creation with them, to give them rest with him. Have you ever wondered about why God rests at the end of creation? 
Presumably, he's not tired, right? He's God. He doesn't need rest like you or I need, right? The kind of, well, it's the end of week one of uni, I need a holiday now kind of rest. God's not like that. He doesn't need rest. No, this is the rest that comes with a completeness, fullness, the rest of a job well done. That's, that's kind of what the number seven represents through the Bible. That's why it's here as the, the seventh day rest. And there's no, there's no end to this seventh day. The other six days of creation, it says there was morning and there was evening, the fifth day, the sixth day. But there's no evening of the seventh day. It continues, this rest. But then sin and death separate humans from the joy of seventh day rest with God. And instead, they're subjected to painful, grinding work, the opposite of rest. But does God leave them there? No. Right? He's determined to bring them back into the rest that he made them to enjoy with him. And so he takes Israel, like we've seen, from Egypt into the promised land, he starts fulfilling his, his promises to bring them back into that rest. And God also gives them the practice of, of a literal seventh-day rest every week. Right? He gives them the practice of the Sabbath, which means stop. That's what that word means, to stop. It's a day for the people to live as if the forever rest, which is still to come, has already begun. He gives them one day of rest out of every seven days. And the Sabbath is one of seven festivals in the Jewish calendar, each one anticipating that seventh day rest that was lost and will be refound. And every seven years, the people are commanded to let the land itself rest. And every seven times seven years comes the ultimate rest, the year of Jubilee, an anticipation of the eternal rest for a whole year where slaves are released, debts are forgiven, the people spend that whole year rejoicing in God's goodness and presence. The whole life of, of that nation, of that people of God, was this cycle of anticipation of the rest that was to come, that they had lost. And it all echoes out from God's own first rest on that seventh day. But as we've already seen, right, with promised land rest, these human patterns of rest, these, the Sabbath and these festivals and these years, they were incomplete. People still had to scratch a living out of, out of the ground. Sin and death still affect the world. And it's into this scene where sin and death affect everything, where there's this glorious hope of something to come. It's into this scene that Jesus enters And at the very beginning of his ministry, on a Sabbath day, he enters the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, the prophet. This is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
That's the Jubilee year. Jesus himself, in his person, brings the beginning of the rest, which every other human experience of rest points to. He called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He offers a new kind of rest. And this is the third horizon of rest that's in view in our passage. It's the rest that Jesus offers. It's eternal rest. Have a look at our verse 6 in your passage in front of you. So it says, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, so that's that wilderness generation, right? God again set a certain day, calling it today. So he's saying, even though God rested from his work of creation, even though he brought Israel into the promised land, there is still a rest which is yet to be realized, a rest which is yet to be reached. There is a better rest yet to come, and it's available to us, to people. Verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. So even though Israel had Sabbath practices, there's a deeper Sabbath that is still available for the people of God. That's us. It's eternal rest, forever rest. It's the rest that Jesus offers. Often I walk the dog in the cemetery early in the morning. Not that cemetery, that's just a stock photo, but you know, you know what cemeteries look like. Uh, I walk through the, the Melbourne General Cemetery up Ligon Street there. And people have all kinds of different things written on their tombstones in that cemetery. Some, some list the people's family members who survive them after they're deceased. Some remember their accomplishments, like being in the military or things that they've achieved. One that I saw the other day, the guy um, played AFL and Olympic water polo, which I thought was pretty good. That's worth putting on your tombstone. But still, by far the most common thing that you see on tombstones as you walk around the cemetery, written in all kinds of different languages, is the phrase, rest in peace. That's still the most common thing written on people's tombstones. Why? Why is that? Why do people write that on their tombstones, or on the, the tombstones of people they love? Rest in peace. Well, I reckon that whatever ways we might look for rest in this life, we all want rest in the next life, right? We want those we love who've gone ahead of us into the next life to have rest. How we pursue it in this life, whether we look for rest in achievements or distraction or escape or whatever... However we might pursue soul rest now, we all want soul rest after death in the next life. And, and the claim of Jesus is that that rest, the rest beyond this life, is found in him and in him alone. 
Some of Jesus' most famous words are found in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me read that again. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you long for rest for your soul? Come to Jesus. Are you weary and burdened? Come to Jesus. He is the one, he's the only one who can give rest now and forever. He's the better Joshua, right? He's the one who can lead us into the promised land that's not temporary or incomplete, but eternal and perfect. And we know it's true. We know it's true because he went there ahead of us and he takes us by the hand to lead us there. Jesus began his ministry when he read that passage from Isaiah on the Sabbath day. And he went to the cross at the end of the week. On the sixth day, he died in our place and on the Sabbath, he lay in the tomb. And then on the the first day of the week, on the eighth day, as the sun rose over that cemetery, he rose into a new life that would continue forever. New life that would never end in perfect completeness and fullness and wholeness. A perfect and eternal seventh day rest. That, that event, the resurrection of Jesus, is the promise, it's the seal. It's the beginning of the eternal rest which he invites us into, right? And it's a new kind of rest. It's something different to what came before. It's a rest that's free from sin and death. But it's also a very old kind of rest. It's the first kind of rest, the rest that God made us for back in the garden, And it's there for us, it's available to us. What word does the passage use? Today. There is rest for us today. Verse seven, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And that probably leads us to kind of a key question, right, that we really need to answer for all of this about rest to, to make sense, especially if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, right? If there is a soul-level rest, a rest for our souls that Jesus offers us, how do we get it? How, how do we, as in the language of the passage, enter that rest? 
Because it's one thing for Jesus to, to offer us rest, but another thing for us to know how to accept it, how, how to move into it, how to enter it, right? All of us who were at uni, at some point before we started uni, got an offer to, to begin a course, and you had to accept that offer. Some of us who were working uh, at one point received the offer of a job, and there was a particular way you had to accept the offer of that job. How do we accept God's offer of rest? What do we do? Maybe if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you can, you can feel that you want what Jesus is offering, but you don't know how to receive it. Well, we, we enter God's rest, we accept what Jesus offers by responding to God's word with faith. That's what this passage says. We enter God's rest by responding to God's word with faith. Soul rest is God's gift. It's offered by grace. It's the gift of God to us. He initiates it. He brings it about. But, but strangely, perhaps, we're urged in this passage to be careful that we don't fall short of it. That's, that's verse 1. And in verse 11, to make every effort to enter God's rest. Is that, is that inconsistent with the gospel that says salvation comes by grace? I, I don't think so. I think God's word here, this, this idea of God's word has two very overlapping meanings to help us understand this, right? God's word here is, is the Bible. This is how he speaks through scripture, through the Bible. But it's also Jesus himself, the word made flesh, as John says. And they're deliberately very overlapping meanings here of God's word, Jesus and the Bible, right? Because it's Jesus that the Bible is all about, it's the Bible which presents to us the gospel of Jesus, that gospel of grace that brings us salvation, that brings us rest. God initiates it, God brings it, he gives it to us, and at the same time, it's our response to the word of God, Jesus revealed in the Bible, which determines whether or not we will enter God's rest whether or not we will be saved, another way that the Bible puts it. Back in the wilderness, in, in the desert, for those people who came out of Egypt, it was their response to God's word that excluded them from entering a promised land. God spoke to them, right? He, he called them, trust me, and they said no. So they didn't enter God's rest. That's why we're urged to not be like them, but to respond to God's word with, with faith instead. And the word of God is like a sword, verse, tells us, verse 12 tells us. It's so, so sharp that it slides through any defenses, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. What, what does that mean? Well, think of 
another illustration. Maybe if, if Hebrews was written today, the author would have written that the Word of God is like an X-ray. Maybe that's a similar kind of illustration here. It sees inside you. It sees to your very core, the deepest part of who you are, through every layer of you. That's, that's what Jesus does, right? That's what the person and the work of Jesus does. Do you remember um, Jesus with the woman at the well? Do you remember that interaction? Jesus engages her in conversation about, about life and faith. And she tries to evade his, his questions instead of engaging him on the real question of who she is and, and who he is. But she's not getting away from the word of God here. He names her past, that she's had five husbands, and the man that she now lives with is not her husband. He names her deep heartache, her deep need, and he declares to her that he is the living water, the only one who can give her what she needs. He cuts through to her heart. That's what the word of God does. From these two strangers meeting at a well, he brings them to the real her and the real him, and he changes her life. And that's, that's what the Word of God does for us. That's what Jesus does for us as we see him revealed in Scripture, as his Spirit works in us. Right, verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus, the Word of God, he knows you. He knows every way that you might seek rest in this life. And he says to you that the only way to find what you're looking for is by responding to him in faith. Would we do that tonight? For those of us who aren't followers of Jesus, as his, as his word divides our souls and spirits, as he shows us the real us and the real him, will we respond to him with faith? Or will we respond to him with disobedience? And for those of us who already walk with Jesus, who have responded to him with faith, will we heed the warning of, of this passage? Even those of us who have already made a commitment to, to follow Jesus, those of us who call ourselves Christians, this warning is here for us. Will we make every effort to enter God's rest? Will we continue responding with faith and obedience to find that, that forever soul rest that Jesus invites us into? I'm going to pray that we would, every one of us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that in you we find rest for our souls. For those of us who are weary and burdened, as we look for rest in all the wrong places, Lord, we pray that we would respond to your offer of true rest found in Jesus. Help us respond to you in faith, not in disobedience and bring every 
one of us into the forever rest that Jesus gives us. Amen.